Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nemity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. You're listening to Serious Privacy by Trustark. Please welcome our hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Every year in the final week of January, privacy professionals from around the world assemble in the north of Brussels for the Computers Privacy and Data Protection Conference. For me, it is one of the best privacy events on the calendar, because it is not just a trade show, but instead CPDP allows for real academic debate with representatives from companies, civil society, government institutions, and yes, academia. In recent year, on the final day, the European Data Protection Law Review awards a Young Scholar Award and hosts a panel to discuss the nominated papers. This week, we have the first of this year's three finalists for the EDPL Award on the podcast. Isabel Hahn holds a Bachelor of Laws degree, holds a Bachelor of Laws degree from the London School of Economics and Political Science, recently completed an internship at None of Your Business, and has just started a new internship with the European Data Protection Supervisor. And her paper focuses on the concept of purpose limitation and the question whether or not it is still compatible with today's data economy. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So welcome, Isabel. We're very glad you joined us. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Kay. Thank you. Are you familiar with the unexpected question? I am, Uh-oh. and I am waiting in anticipation. <laughs> I have no idea what's about to hit me. So I'm, I'm going to take it easy. This one is, what are the top songs on your recently played list? Oh, my goodness. Maybe not so that easy. That is not an easy one. Maybe not so easy. Hmm, the top songs on my recently played list. That is a great question. I actually have to say, <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of Frank Sinatra recently. Just, uh, I find I find them very, very calming. So uh, a lot of... Jazz has been going on in my recently played, uh, much to my surprise, but definitely been feeling the vibe a lot more than usual, but um, not complaining. It's, it's been really, really calming and nice to listen to that. <laughs> nice. I like it. So, Paul, that makes me think of you then. So can you guess? Opera? Well, close. Close. Last week was Easter, so I listened to a lot of The Passion of St. Matthew by Bach, which is a tradition here in the Netherlands. Every Easter, both The Passion of St. Matthew and The Passion of St. John are performed everywhere throughout the country, in normal times, that is. And I I used to listen to that a lot and, and go to at least one concert a year with my father. So that that's something I do every Easter. After Easter, I think it was mainly just the Discover Weekly from from my Spotify that that just shows the new songs and trying to select something that's nice. So how about you? I could say guess, but you'll you you won't get it. So I'll just go with it. I've been listening <laughs> to Skinnerd lately. 
No song in particular. Just Tell me more. Le- do you know of Leonard Skinner? Mm-hmm. So Sweet Home Alabama is the the number one on there that I typically go with, and it's one of the only two songs I've ever done in karaoke. But uh, Simple Man, Free Bird, Give Me Three Steps, things like that. So th- those are mine. Those are the ones I love. But Sweet Home Alabama is the one that sticks in my head the most. So I've been rocking out on some Skinner lately. I was going to say Easter with uh, He's Alive by Dolly Parton, but I moved on from there. Okay. So with that, let's move on to the fascinating topic of Isabel's paper. So take it away, Paul. I know you have a burning question starting. Well, the main question is, why this topic? How did you come up with the idea to write about the purpose limitation principle? That's a super good question, Paul. Why the purpose limitation principle? So I guess just a quick uh, overview for those of you that aren't familiar, the purpose limitation principle is a principle under the General Data Protection Regulation, so what we in Europe call the GDPR. It's found under Article 5, specifically under Article 5, Paragraph 1. And it kind of stipulates that data should be collected for a purpose that is specific, explicit, and legitimate, and not be further processed in a way that is incompatible with that purpose. So in that sense, it really is, and it's been labeled by many, to be a cornerstone of data protection. And it's a principle that's really fundamentally important when it comes to the way our current data protection system is structured. It's one of the core principles that is found under Article 5. And I think one of the issues with core principles is that they are often overlooked. And so why the purpose limitation principle? I think we are currently in a really fascinating period when it comes to data collection, big data, data processing, where data is being collected at an unprecedented scale, being reused and repurposed for so many different purposes, while this practice is totally in juxtaposition with one of the core principles, which we here in Europe, you know, deem a cornerstone of data protection law, this idea that you should only collect data for a specific purpose. And I think that this clash or this fundamental tension between the current reality, which we have nowadays, where this principle isn't really being respected, and the idea that it's meant to be this, this strong foothold over the way that we approach data collection and processing. I think those those intersections are, are worthy of expo- exploration. So I think those intersections are worthy of exploration. And that's why I, uh, when I stumbled across the topic, I knew that it was something that I wanted to research and write about because I think it is really interesting to explore topics that kind of juxtapose one another, but at the end of the day may still be compatible depending on how you look at them. So had you been doing any any work or following any classes on, on privacy legislation before you stumbled upon purpose limitation? Or yeah. was this just sheer coincidence? <laughs> no, I mean, sheer coincidence to an extent. But so as you briefly mentioned, I studied law at the London School of Economics. I did my bachelor's degree there. And in my third and final year, and in my second year, I took a class on IT law which covered everything from intellectual property law to computer misuse to data protection. And that's when I really became interested in data protection. I thought it was super fascinating. I thought it was a field that's beginning to grow. It's it's so new and so nascent in many ways that that it was Mm -hmm. really interesting. And so when I got around to my third and final year of law school, I decided that this was something I definitely wanted to stick to for the time being and explore. 
And so when it came to writing my thesis paper, I decided this is something that I definitely want to write about. And so upon doing some research, that's when I came across the purpose imitation principle. And that's when it really caught my attention. And I guess one thing led to another. And now I'm here. So uh, very happy with the, the way that the journey has been so far. And now you're stuck in data protection. And now, I'm <laughs> well, for now, I'm enjoying my time in data protection. <laughs> very good. Very good. So the purpose limitation principle, yes, we know it from the GDPR, but it is no longer unique to the European Union, is it? We've seen it in other laws in, in Brazil, in, in Virginia now, in the state legislation, there is a form of purpose limitation. It's part of other draft state laws and, and other privacy laws across the world. Is it something that is here to stay? That's a great question. And I think it is something that if it is here to stay, it will not be without pushback. Because I think whether we're talking in a European context or in a broader transatlantic context, I think one thing is for sure, and that is the way that data is being collected and repurposed is no longer in such a way that one collects one piece of data for one purpose and then never uses that piece of data again. And I think that's a problem that, well, I think that's a phenomenon that occurs worldwide, regardless of where you are. And so whether or not the purpose limitation principle is, or whatever one may call it, depending on which jurisdiction one is in, I think it won't be without a fight. And I think that there are inherent values and normative normative concepts that, that the, the idea of purpose limitation seeks to really enforce and seeks to ground that I think are worthy of keeping and worthy of pursuing. And just because our current data collection and processing landscape may have shifted, just because our current data collection and processing landscape may have shifted, I don't think that's a reason why we should devalue these concepts or reduce the importance that they play or the important roles that they play. And as we're looking at the sheer amount of data that's collected worldwide, and there are numerous statistics out there about it, one of the things that you reference in your paper is how data is aggregated across different data sets. And I believe you both include data sets that the company may have available to them internally, as well as other data sets that they might be able to acquire, or where they might share their data to, or take it one further step, or one step further, the data brokers that specialize in acquiring data from everywhere. So where do you see the purpose limitation applying in the big data concept? That's a that's a great question. So, you know, I think it's really <laughs> I think it's interesting. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's really interesting because I look. I think inherently you have you can talk about purpose limitation on multiple different levels. What I explore in my paper is purpose limitation when it comes to big tech giants that control data flows. So, you know, the big tech giants, you name them, and how they approach the concept. But I think that. The, the principle exists on multiple levels, and I'll give you an example. Recently, a complaint was filed here in Austria before the Austrian Data Protection Authority against a credit rating agency. And essentially what had happened is someone had filed a subject access request under, under Article 15 of the GDPR asking for the data that, that this credit rating agency held on them. They received the data, and in order to be able to receive the data, the, the complainant had provided a copy of their ID. 
And the credit rating agency said, great, thank you very much here. We actually don't hold any data on you. But now that you've given us your ID and your data, we're now going to take that data Mm -hmm. and put it into our database and update our database based on your data. And that's an inherent violation of the idea of purpose limitation. You're taking data that's provided for one purpose and using it for a completely different purpose without a legal ground for doing so. And And that's a great example. That is a really great example because not only is that specifically against GDPR's purpose limitation, but it's something that we've wrestled with on a practical basis. And even the CCPA references it. Data that you collect in order to verify identity or to request data subject access rights should not be used or included in the data that you now have about that person. Exactly. And I think that's a that's a very good example and a very simple example to understand why this concept is so relevant, at least in my view, because I personally don't think it's okay to, to, to provide a certain entity or person or whoever it may be with data for one purpose and have that be completely used for a different purpose. And that's why I think, you know, you're talking about purpose limitation on different levels and each level is just as important as the next. And, and that's why I think it's a fundamentally important concept, which should not be, you know, under undervalued. And do you think this is a concept that the average person understands? That's a good question, because I think that the unfortunately, I think it's such that the average person can definitely understand these concepts, but most likely shies away from doing so just because of the sheer legal jargon that these concepts are enveloped in. And, you know, just that's why, number one, it's important to write about them, I think. And I think, number two, it's it's super important to to show people that you don't need to have a lot of experience. You don't need to have professional qualifications to understand these topics or write about them. And Or you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to, exactly. And, and that's a narrative that I think is worth building. And I think it's a narrative that's important to, to show people that no matter their age, their background, these are important concepts that are worthy of engagement. And one, if one's interested, one should engage with them regardless of, of you know, who they are or where they come from. And I think that's a little bit, I mean, I'm, on a bit of a personal note, I think that the idea that it should be accessible really speaks to me because, you know, Paul, you mentioned the the EDPL Young Scholars Award. As 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 mentioned, I only hold a bachelor's degree. And this is a paper that I initially wrote for my bachelor's degree. And so when I came across the EDPL Young Scholars Award competition, I saw that it was open to master's and PhD students. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, there is absolutely no way that my knowledge is is enough or substantive to an extent that I'd even be able to to perform or to to have someone take interest in my paper and i think there is a there is an you know an access barrier when it comes to privacy mm-hmm. and data protection unfortunately and i think it's really important to to build a narrative that it's a young and it's a developing field and anyone who's interested is more than able to get involved and take part. And, you know, I've experienced that myself now and I think it's really worthy of sharing and encouraging more people to do so. At the same time, I do think that purpose limitation is probably by far the easiest principle to explain to a general audience that you can only use data for the reason for which you handed it over in the first place. That should be 
it should be so obvious you shouldn't need to write it down in the legislation, that you cannot just do everything with the data that you have just because you have it. There is a big difference between the need to know information and the nice to have information. That's also why I'm always so annoyed if web forms ask for all kinds of information that is completely irrelevant for the thing that I try to do, whether that is indeed filing an access request to the publisher of a GDPR manual in France. This actually happened. And they wanted my date of birth to be able to file a complaint. Wow. Why would they need my date of birth to file a complaint? Why do they need my full address if the only communication that we had was via email? All those things would not need to be mandatory. And that's especially cynical if you try to file a complaint about privacy for buying a privacy book when your rights were violated. No, I think you might be right in saying that it is a, a simple concept to explain to people, but I unfortunately think that it's often the simple concepts that are most overlooked because they are. So perhaps in your face or obvious that that one doesn't mm -hmm. think that it's important to enforce them or to really place much emphasis on them because they're right there. And I'm sure there is a there there are concepts that are inherently more complicated, but I think unfortunately what we're seeing with the enforcement landscape here in Europe is that it's neither the complicated topics nor the simple ones that are really being pushed in either direction when it comes to enforcement. And that's why I think in particular, you know, some of the principles that are found under Article 5 of the GDPR are, are worthy of more in-depth exploration and discussion, most definitely. So in your paper, you mention the so-called data power companies and explain that the way they process and collect personal data has become opportunistic rather than purposeful. Can you tell us a bit more about that statement and, and, and what these data power companies are. Absolutely. So data power companies are companies that inherently are able to control the, the flow of information and control, you know, the way that data, data power companies are able to control information flows between different actors in the digital environment. And it's really the control of this information that makes them so powerful. You have concepts like market power, like digital giants, et cetera, et cetera. But all of these concepts seek to portray an actual characteristic that a company might have, such as, you know, a dominant market player or, or a digital giant such that it's subject to certain legislative provisions. But I think data power seeks to describe the process which makes a company really omnipresent and dominant. That's what I think is interesting. And in my paper, I explore three different features, which I think are quite relevant when it comes to contributing to data power. The first is omnipresence in a digital environment, which allows a company to really build an insight into an individual's life through many different mediums. Second feature is a large volume and variety of data that a company has in an, on an individual, which allows them to predict information about the individual and also control information flows about that individual. And partially, this volume and variety of data is generated through, through repurposing data, and value is really reaped once this data is used in different contexts. And the third feature, which, which I think really contributes to data power, is the ability to aggregate, aggregate data across different data sets. And all of these three features combined really lead to a situation in which there is an asymmetry of power between the company and the user and what 
the user knows about the company versus what the company knows about them. And I think it really allows companies to really pervasively take part or pervasively interfere in in an individual's life and in in particular their right to a private life and the right to data protection is enshrined in them in the charter. Paul, I'm going to ask you to repeat your last part of your question here. (laughs) (laughs) Mainly what the what the role is that these data power companies play in 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 relation to your your statement that they are opportunistic rather than purposeful. Right. And so I think I think what we're seeing with regards to these data power companies is that realistically you're witnessing a data protection or realistically you're witnessing a data collection landscape where data collection is opportunistic rather than purposeful. And what this means is that companies have the incentive to collect data at every instance at which they can, even if they don't know what they're going to do with the data later on. Because Especially when they don't know what they're going to do with it. Especially, that's that's totally right, Kay. And I think that's one of the, the current issues of the, the current data collection landscape. And I think, you know, big data technologies only serve to make the issue worse because they also encourage just a sheer, just a large, a large amount of data collection. And the idea is let's collect all this data. And then maybe through a set of algorithms or through a set of, you know, repurposing and recombination, we'll be able to come up with some really interesting identifiers about the individual or be able to profile them in ways that we didn't know. And so unfortunately, I think data power companies are not even just them, just the whole data collection environment has become opportunistic and data is collected at each possible instance and you know repurposed and revalued and that leads to a situation in which the value of data no longer comes from the point at which it is collected but from after it is repurposed and reused and i think that's something that we need to deal with if we really intend to defend these rights that are enshrined both in the charter and in, you know, different legislations and regulations, both in the EU and abroad. So do you think that is partly due because these data power companies are mainly US-based, at least that is my assumption, uh, maybe for you to confirm, but that they are mainly US-based and are more working under the assumption that only the use of data should be regulated instead of the collection, like we do here in Europe, since that was always the US tradition, regulate use of data instead of collection? I'm not even sure we do a good job at regulating use. (laughs) No, you don't, but that's another discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I think it's due to, to multiple things, whether it's due alone to the fact that the companies are U.S.-based, I'm not so sure, or whether it partially comes from the fact that there is a lack of strict enforcement when it comes to to violating certain certain laws and certain provisions that we, we would like to see enforced. That might, might also be a reason. But I think inherently, whether the company is U.S.-based or they're a small startup in, say, a small European country or somewhere in Asia. Unfortunately, I think there has been a paradigm shift in in the way that we we view data as more of a commodity now than we might have before. And there is an incentive to collect as much of it and see what we can do with it and see what can come of it. 
I don't know if it's due to 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 the location of a company. I, I think the issue is unfortunately more more prevailing and more widespread than that. So, okay, what what do you think about purpose limitations? Should this be part of the new U.S. federal privacy law? Yes, I do believe that purpose limitation should be part of it, but I also have to add, and maybe this. Maybe this is where the U.S. perspective comes into play because you know I'm a huge privacy advocate, but we don't know what we don't know. So as uses of data start coming to light in future years, whether or not it's beneficial or harmful or money grubbing or whatever you want to call it, we've learned a lot about our world by using data in ways that it was not collected for. For example, Twitter being able to identify flu outbreaks long before doctors and medical care personnel could based on what people were saying on social media. And of course, that the purpose of saying it on social media was not for healthcare authorities to be able to predict outbreaks. So if you consider that there are some benefits to not having a purpose limit or not sticking to a strict purpose limitation. And as I say that, I'm cringing. You can see it from my face because I'm sitting here going, <laughs> wow, data should really only be used for the purpose it's collected for. Okay, is that really you saying this? I know, right? <laughs> But I really am thinking about it that we have discovered so min so much about our world because of the data that we've collected that we've used for purposes other than what it was collected for. I'm not sure that disclaiming that in a privacy notice is effective whatsoever. I know in privacy notices that I've read from others that basically says, oh, by the way, the data we're collecting from you, we're going to use in every possible way we can and combine it with every single bit of data that we can find to find new ways of finding out information about you. I mean, there are companies that disclaim that, but that's not good enough. Because mm -hmm. who goes and reads the privacy notices, especially the ones that require three PhDs to read them? I really do wish companies would drop their privacy notice in a readability scale. There are some really good ones online for free. And if that score is greater than a 12, which is a 12th grade education level, your privacy notice is way too sophisticated for the average person to understand. But that aside, there is some benefit to it. I mean, think about some of the... The ways that I've mentioned, how does that resonate with you to say, oh, wow, there is actually benefits to not sticking to a purpose limitation, but where do you draw the line? No, I guess that's the whole question of compatible use. Yeah. What is compatible use? Compatible use does cover a lot of it. Probably not, unless you really expand the whole discussion on the, the compatible use of data collected for scientific and research purposes. Is that would that be compatible to expressing your frustrations on being sick online? Isabel, tell us. You're the expert here. <laughs> I mean, that's not an easy question, Isabel. It's no, really not. I think uh, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head in saying that a lot of these things do come down to interpretation. And that's the thing. A lot of these concepts are inherently blurred at their boundaries. And whether something is now, can one say that it is within the realms of compatible use because it has, you know, a, a greater, a greater healthcare or, or national security interest, or does one have to stick to a strict interpretation of the law? 
to to be able to understand these concepts. And I think that's one of the the, the difficulties when it comes to guiding principles or values or, or you know, you name it, is that on the one hand, they do try and draw a line. And on the other hand, hey, as you say, sometimes there's very good reason to to find out where that line can be blurred. Should that be our guiding post then is, as Paul said, compatible use is typically permitted. Maybe the beneficial use should be measured along the lines of legitimate interest. That maybe you have to affirmatively acknowledge that you're using the data for a purpose for which it was not collected. However, there is a legitimate interest in using the data for that purpose. And then you have to balance that against the expectations or the awareness of the user in providing that data. Would they be shocked? Would they be appalled? Would they be harmed by the data being used for a secondary purpose? And one of my common examples for secondary purpose is using the data for internal IT development and testing. So if you're collecting the data to send someone a newsletter, as Paul was saying earlier, then why are you using it to test software on? It's a really interesting point when you say legitimate interest, because that's also been put forth in the academic landscape. And there's even been suggestions that the compatible use element be replaced with a test based on legitimate interest. But then you, re- but then you run into the, the issue of whose legitimate interest is to be taken into account here. Is it the legitimate interest of the company? Is it the legitimate interest of the healthcare provider? Is it the legitimate interest of the data subject who partially has no idea for which purposes their data is even being used and therefore cannot expect that their data be used in a different manner? And I think that's where you run into murky waters. And I think personally, that's where the legitimate interest argument falls short in the sense that it is very shaky and in many ways, open to exploitation in a way that I think will only serve to exacerbate the asymmetry of power that exists between data power companies or companies that possess the ability to repurpose data as they wish and individuals who are trying to gain any type of transparency and insight into the digital ecosystem. So in your paper, I'm I'm drawing us back to to the paper as well. You also talk about the theory of contextual integrity from Helen Nissenbaum. And also that relates, of course, a lot to the discussion we're having now on compatible use. What is the whole context in which the data processing is taking place? Will that be part of a of a solution for this discussion? I think contextual integrity. So just to backtrack a little bit, contextual integrity is kind of a normative theory which was presented by Helen Nissenbaum, Helen Nissenbaum in her book, Privacy and Context, originally. And contextual integrity seeks to determine when a violation of privacy has occurred through a contextual evaluation of norms related to information sharing. And it really is a normative framework which one can apply in different situations to understand how perhaps the expectations of individuals are not being met or how certain informational norms are seeking to further one thing, but our current reality is furthering another. And through this analysis and through this framework, one can normatively try to understand how a situation looks. And to, to answer your question, Paul, whether that's the solution, that's a that's a hard call to make because there are many people who would who would say that normative approaches are very much not what we should be looking towards and that they are also open to interpretation. 
and that they are inherently normative when we are inherently in a situation where things are as they are. And there's also those that suggest that the whole idea of purpose limitation is unattainable because even if companies were to tell us what they're doing and exactly how they're doing it on paper, we have no means through which to verify that that's actually going on behind the scenes or the technical expertise to understand whether or not this is the truth in full. And when it comes to what the way forward is, that's uh, that's another paper in itself. But I think it's very much open to debate and to exploration. So what's next in privacy for you? What's next in privacy? So I am currently doing a traineeship at the European Data Protection Supervisor in their supervision and enforcement unit, which is incredibly exciting as I'm getting to hands-on understand how how some of the enforcement stuff looks like and and how that's materialized or how that materializes in practice. But what's next is a bit of a question mark at the minute. Yeah, we'll leave that one open. Very good. So do you see privacy as your career moving forward? Are you hooked? I definitely think I am hooked and I, I definitely think the the field is super interesting and I would love to stay in it. And people, you know, always warn me against specializing too early. I mean, after all, I just turned 22. So, you know, people say to me, explore your <laughs> options and stuff like that. But I really- you have about 50 years of career left in front of you. <laughs> Right. Well, and and there's no reason that specializing in privacy early is going to hurt you. I think I'm on my third clearly defined career. (laughs) No, but I think it's a super interesting field. And, you know, as I as I mentioned earlier, I think it's it's important to get young people involved in in a growing field and especially women as well who are interested and, and want to further their careers. And, you know, the tech world is open to so many and I think it's important to go out and try and put your foot in the door as much as you can, as long as it interests you. Well, I guess you have made a great start with submitting your paper and being nominated for the EDPL award. So it's a very good start. And we look forward what else we we will hear from you in coming years. As Kay always likes to, to wrap up with a question, was there anything that you wanted to share with us when we invited you to come on the program that we haven't discussed yet? I think, you know, going back to my personal experience, one thing that I've really had a bit of a hard time with the last couple of years getting into privacy is the whole notion that one has to have years of experience and understanding to be able to interpret legislation, to be able to read or write academic papers, and to be able to make a difference. And I like to say that that's not the case and that one should always be willing to try and that there shouldn't be such a barrier to entry. And so for anyone listening that is interested in the sector, but feels like they don't know enough or they aren't qualified enough, that's not the case. And, you know, <laughs> me and my, my bachelor's thesis paper are currently proof of that. So, so I think to anyone out there who's really interested in the field and would like to get involved and explore concepts, however difficult they may seem, absolutely go for it. And there's nothing to lose. I like that. So do I. So with that, thank you for listening to another episode of Serious Privacy. Next week, we'll speak with the next author nominated for the EDPL Young Scholar Award, 
Tanner Kuru. And if you do like our series, please do tell your friends and colleagues about us and rate and review our episodes in your favorite podcast app. Thank you for all the reviews that we've had so far. And should you have any questions or suggestions, and especially if you would like to be a guest, please reach out to us via Serious Privacy at TrustArp.com or via Twitter at, at Podcast Privacy. You will find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Zero Paul B. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey, listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because their deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions. <laughs>